I mentioned last week that we're extending this idea of blessed are the peacemakers into two weeks. So today is part two of blessed are the peacemakers. Um, hopefully you were with us last week. I think, you know, not because it was me teaching, like I was hearing. And for me, it was so critical. This concept of peace with God is so central to what it means to follow Jesus and to live into all that God intends us to be. And so what I want to do this morning is do things just a little bit different than our normal teaching time. So basically we're going to have three parts to what we do in the teaching time this morning. I'm going to spend some time reviewing where we were at last week, just a quick overview. Then we're going to pause and we're going to share communion together. We're going to taste peace in a very real way. And then on the basis of that, we're going to talk about Uh, Just some observations from two passages about what are some of the implications on being a peacemaker and how do we actually go about doing that. So that's our task this morning. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We said last week that it's so interesting how desperate our world is in need of peace. In fact, since 1945, when the United Nations was established uh, to be a peace-giving organization, to turn from the ways of world wars and uh, forge peace in our world, there's been over 100 known wars involving over 100 known nations. And so all that tells me is that something is wrong with our human attempt to find peace. And really, you can look at the world and be discouraged, Because peace is not very many places to be found. But then there's this one glimpse of hope that I found this week. And maybe you saw this too. There's actually a glimmer of hope for peace in our world, and I want to show this to you. So, Burger King's proposing a Burger Wars ceasefire to join forces with McDonald's on Peace Day and create the McWhopper. That's a big burger with big ambitions. A fair amount to swallow, right? So here's a little how, where, and why to help you digest our proposal. As two of the world's largest brands, we're in the perfect position to influence change. And like BK, McDonald's is committed to leveraging its size, scope, and resources to help make the world a better place. Peace One Day campaigns tirelessly for a better world. But they need our help raising awareness of Peace Day. We could rattle a bucket, but buckets aren't loud. Proposals like McWhopper make noise. Just ask this guy. Hi, I'm Jeremy Gilley, founder of Peace One Day. The thing I love about the McWhopper project is it walks the walk. It leads by example and demonstrates a genuine commitment to Peace Day and a more peaceful and sustainable world. Corporate activation on this scale creates mass awareness and awareness creates action. And action saves lives. We hope you get on board, McDonald's. So do we, Jeremy. We can't do this without them. So we've made participation easy, one location, one day only. We've designed a proposed pop-up restaurant, the packaging, even the staff uniforms. All we have to do is park our differences for one day and do what we both do best. No strings. Together, let's blaze a trail, build the unthinkable burger, and feed the discussion. Let's end the beef with beef. On Peace Day, September 21st, 2015. There's hope, right? There's hope. Because... With the McWhopper, we'll save lives. Or possibly end them that very day when you consume the... F- you, it's possible. 
in all seriousness, there's you know, all kinds of human reasons behind it. It's a real thing. Of course, McDonald's promptly said, no, thank you, uh, and ended the, any hope of that. The truth is that part of the reason stuff like this catches our attention is not because it's interesting and creative and innovative and funny and humorous, but it's because in our world we really have the understanding that peace is almost non-existent. So when anyone proposes it, it's almost bizarre to us to think about it. And what I want to suggest to you one more time this morning is that that's because we can only have peace with others when we actually have peace with God. Outside of peace with God, peace with others is a hopeless dream. A hopeless dream. Because anything that depends upon me or you is not going to work. But when we have experienced true peace with God, then and only then can we be agents of peace in the world. So what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, we said first you have to have peace with God. And we said that this beatitude, Jesus phrased it in such an interesting way to make sense of this for us. Blessed are the peacemakers... For they will be called children of God. Why is it they'll be called children of God? Well, it's not that if you make peace, you become a child of God. It's that the fact that you are a child of God is evidence of the fact, or excuse me, the fact that you are a peacemaker is evidence of the fact that you are a child of God. In fact, being called a child of God is really having peace realized in your life. The Hebrew word that we translate peace is called shalom, and it means much more than peace means in our world. We think of peace and we just think of ceasing conflict, right? So I told you this all the time. Peace for me means when Jackson and Tyler happen to be in the mood of friendliness as brothers, right? not when they are at each other's throats, you know? Peace means not the week before getting ready for a new school year, right, parents? So most of us, we think of peace in these terms of just ceasing conflict, but that is not the Hebrew concept of shalom. Shalom really means when everything in the world is as God intended it to be. So another simple way to say it is when everything is right. That's what shalom is. The problem is that we are not right. And so shalom is a difficult reality for us and God. We said shalom is not just the ceasing of conflict, but the normalization of relations. Remember this? And so we told the difference between the Korean War, which is just a truce that could really spark again at any moment, and say the World War II or the Revolutionary War, where now some of the people we once fought are actually allies of the United States. So peace, then, is the idea of ceasing conflict between man and God and normalizing relationship between man and God. Or in other words, having rightness, or as the word is always translated in the Bible, righteousness applied to us. And the way that is defined in the Bible is being called a child of God. It's a theological term, adoption. Basically means those who were once enemies of God, the conflict hasn't ended and we just kind of don't like each other anymore. He actually brings us right into the family 
and tells us to call him daddy. This is what it means to be called a child of God. So naturally, we ask then, how do you get this? And I suggested to you four realities. The first was, you have to be honest about the war that is going on. Be honest about the war that is going on. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It will not follow His law. In fact, it cannot follow His law. In other words, mankind is warring against God. And we paused and said, well, most of you, if you're like me, stop and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't tell me I'm at war with God. Sometimes I may not like Him. Sometimes He doesn't do things the way I want Him to. Sometimes things don't go my way. But I'm not at war with Him. And so we talked a little bit about Jonathan Edwards, a great Puritan thinker who wrote a book called Men, Naturally God's Enemies. And he suggested there are three main symptoms that prove that everyone is at war with God. The first is our mind. The second is our will. And the third is our emotion. And I gave you personal examples of my life that basically went like this. How do we know that we are warring with God? Our mind tells us. Why? The minute anything bad happens in our world, the first thing we do is blame God. Right? Something bad happens. You lose your job. Someone gets sick. There's a massive tragedy. A big cataclysmic event happens in our world. Our first question is, God, where were you? How could you let this happen? How could this come? Why is this happening? Why would this happen to me? Conversely, when the great things in our world happen, we never say, wow, God, you really showed up. Thanks so much. Right? Our world doesn't react that way. And our thoughts show us that we are naturally at war with God. Our will shows us that we are naturally at war with God. How? We said, I told you, per personal example, that in my life I have made thousands if not tens of thousands of promises to God. Most of them, not only did I not keep, I don't even remember them. And I bet you are a lot like me. You're a junior hire, you're away at summer camp, you have a great experience, you make these great promises to God, and by the second week of junior high school, you don't even remember the promises you made to God. Or fast forward, you're about to send your kids off to school, And you're making great promises to God about what you're going to do for them and be for them this coming year. And uh, two weeks into it, right? not only are you not going to be fully keeping those promises, but eventually you're going to forget that you even made them. Why? Because our will is naturally at war with God. You would never not keep promises with your closest of friends the way you do with God. That's true. And then our emotions. We talked about the great feeling of joy it is to get wonderful gifts from our friends. Unexpected, wonderful gifts. And how that changes the flavor of our relationship with them. And how it endears them to us and spurs on our relationship. And how it's memorable and we'll never forget it. But how the Gospel, even though it's the greatest gift ever, is an afterthought for most of us. We can be having the worst day and you can have someone in a non-trite way come and say to you, Man, I know this, light, this day stinks, it is awful, it is hard, but we can rest in the truth that what Jesus has done is bigger. And if you're like me, you know, you say that's true because you want them to feel good about what they've said or you want to feel spiritual to them, but underneath you're saying, I don't want to hear that right now. Do you understand what has happened to me today? Right? 
So we sort of blow off. We, we said uh, Tim Keller has this wonderful quote that literally the rocks and the ground, when they saw the death of Christ, split open. Yet our hearts strangely remain intact. Why? Because our emotions prove that we're naturally warring with God. Colossians chapter 1 says that we are God's enemies. We're at war with God. Be honest about it. Second thing we said was, you need to admit that God is who He says He is. In Colossians 1, 15-19, He's the, 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 the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. He's before all things. He's preeminent. These all things are speaking of Jesus, but He also says that in Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. And He's the perfect image of Him. So this is a picture of God Himself. And we need to admit that that is who God says He is. That He establishes authorities. That He's in charge. That He's the Creator. And then therefore we are not. That's hard. But we have to admit that if we're going to have peace with God. And three things naturally flow from that. We said this, remember? The first is, if God is who He says He is, then He gets to make the rules. God gets to make the rules. If He is who He says He is, He gets to make them. And the truth is, we don't keep them. So the second truth of that is, if God is who He says He is, and He gets to make the rules and we don't keep them, then He has every right to crush our rebellion against Him. And if all of this is true, then we said, if God is who He says He is, and He can crush us and ought to, then God is our only hope for peace. We can turn nowhere else. You're standing in front of a tank ready to be run over. The only hope you have is if the driver stops. And this is the picture of what God has done for us. The picture is not, we said this, it's not just we're sitting in our nice clean houses waiting around and God shows up and says, hey man, you've been living a good life and you look like a good person and I'd love for you to come spend the rest of your life with me and we can be best friends and life goes on. The picture is, the, is a battle scene. Think of the goriest battle scene you've ever seen in a movie or images conjured through the news or your mind. Think of massive warfare going on. Think of, of the victor in the warfare advancing mightily against the, the one who is being dominated. And we are being dominated. We're losing the battle. And God is coming and ready to crush us. And think that in the heat of the moment, in the moment when He can finally declare victory and have it as He, as he wants it, right? To be the victor, that He stops. That He gets out of His military vehicle. That He crosses the line the cost of His own life. And that He finds you still battling Him. And He says to you, come home. This is what peace with God is. We don't understand peace because we think we've never been fighting with God. And God showed up and I just found Him one day at a church and things have been great ever since. That's not the picture of the reality of the peace and how it's been bought. So the third thing we said is you have to accept God's peace. God's peace is defined by the simple word reconciliation. Reconciliation. 
Reconciliation is the act of bringing shalom. He takes the conflict and He ceases it. And at the same time, through the blood of Jesus, in our place, He takes the righteousness of Jesus and gives it to us. So shalom is achieved through reconciliation. How? Because through the death of Jesus, the hostilities of God are satisfied against us. And through the righteous life of Jesus, His rightness or His righteousness is given to us. And therefore, we can have peace with God. That's shalom. This is what God offers to us. We talked about the story of Naaman. Naaman was a Syrian general who, con- who contracted leprosy. And that was a death sentence. Not just in physical death, but in complete ostracization in society. And he had heard of this great healing man in Israel named Elisha. And he said to his servants, send for Elisha so that he might heal me. And so they went and did it. And Elisha said, yeah, I'll do it. Um, so basically tell him, come down to Israel and bathe in the Jordan River and he'll be healed. And the servants went back with this great news for their master. And Naaman was ticked. Remember? First of all, he's ticked because why wouldn't this man, Elisha, honor him with his presence? After all, he was a great Syrian general. And secondly, why would he demean him by making him bathe in that dirty creek known as the Jordan River? Couldn't he bathe in an illustrious Syrian waterway? And so he was not going to do it. He was going to throw his chance for healing completely away. And his servant said to him, are you too proud to be healed, Naaman? And in that moment, Naaman's heart was struck. And he relented and he went to the Jordan River and he bathed and he was healed and he reflected on just how foolish he almost had been. And so our charge then and again this morning to you is, have you truly found peace with God? And please, don't be too proud to be healed. I'm not at war with God. I don't need peace. Don't be Naaman. I don't need all that Jesus has done for me. I'm doing pretty good for myself. Don't be Naaman. Peace with God is offered through Jesus. And then, maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, well, that's great and I've had all that and I love it and yet I still struggle with peace in my life. And we reflected on the last part of Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, where it says, if you continue in this message. The reason that we have peace way, uh, uh, ebb and flow in our life, right? the reason that it recedes in our life is because we leave the gospel behind and move on to other religious efforts. The gospel has become our ticket into the party when in fact the gospel is the whole party. And so the minute you leave the Gospel behind, peace recedes because you're trying to earn God's approval or the approval of others. So I want to pause this morning, drawing our attention back to that. And I want to give us the opportunity to practically engage with this reality. 
to share this communion meal together. We don't do this as a religious rite, right? This is not some crazy thing Christians do, and we don't really understand it. We do this because it is a very tangible reminder of the fact that peace with God was bought at a great price to Jesus. And that it demands our whole life in response to it. And in fact, we believe that in in sharing the communion meal that the Holy Spirit confers grace and empowers us into this life. So this morning, maybe you're wrestling with finding peace for God for the first time. Or, maybe you felt that peace has receded in your life and today is the day you get back to the basics of the Gospel. That you don't earn your favor with God or your approval with God or your acceptance with God. Jesus has earned it you. If you've shared this meal, you have tasted the peace of God. And if you have received the peace of God, you are called a child of God, fully adopted into the family of God. And there are ramifications on that reality for us. In fact, Jesus says clearly in the Beatitudes, if you are a child of God, if you've tasted the peace of God, then you will be a peacemaker. And our final 10 to 15 minutes, I just want to make a couple of quick observations on what it might mean for you to be a peacemaker in your current sphere of influence, in your current circle of life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in James chapter 3, there are two central passages that talk about pursuing peace and reconciliation in life. The reality is that we need to start by making a distinction, don't we? Peacemaking is not equal to peacekeeping. Peacemaking is not equal to peacekeeping. A peacekeeper, when we think of that, is someone who does whatever they can to keep everything at bay and to keep everything just as it is. Right? You have a peacemaker in your family. You do, right? You're thinking of who they are right now. Uh, you, a peacekeeper, I should say. You've got a peacekeeper in your circle of friends, don't you? They're the ones who, when the person who's a little more boisterous and the other person who can get on their soapbox started going at it, they're the ones who try to calm things down, right? They're the peacekeepers. Peacekeeping is a good thing so long as it's not misused, and it often is misused. And oftentimes, peacekeeper keepers are issue stuffers that in fact never allow peace to come. We know that peacemaking can't be peacekeeping because we've said that Jesus is the epitome of peace and He wasn't a peacekeeper. Right? He was not a peacekeeper. Talk to the Pharisees about it and ask them if, you th- if they think that Jesus kept the peace. Talk to the Roman elite and ask them if they thought that Jesus kept the peace. Talk to some of the other people. Talk to the rich young ruler. And ask him if he thought Jesus was a peacekeeper when he said to him, hey, your only way into heaven is you sell everything. That's not peacekeeping. So peacemaking must be something very different. And what I want to suggest to you maybe is a little bit of a radical definition for peacemaking. Because most of us have thought of peacemaking as peacekeeping. right? We we calm things down. We put a little water on the fire because it's blazing too high. We just tone it. If you're in my family, you hear this phrase, could you turn it down a couple notches, right? That either means that I'm getting too loud or Jackson is getting too loud. 
And Rachel's telling one of us that way. Right? Could you turn it down a couple notches? Yeah. Right? That's peacekeeping. Peacemaking is actually pursuing something. I want to suggest to you that peacemaking is actually this. This is my definition. Peacemaking is viewing other people with the mind of Christ. Peacemaking is viewing other people with the mind of Christ. What you will find so interesting in these two verses, in these two passages, Second uh, Corinthians 5 and James chapter 3, is they both contrast the differences between having the mind of the world and the wisdom of God. Having the mind of the world and the wisdom of God. So, from each of these, we'll garner two different things that define having the mind of Christ towards others rather than the mind of the world towards others. In 2 Corinthians 5, you can turn there if you want to, but really no need to. I'm going to read it, uh, and we'll go from there. We find that peacemaking means having the mind of Christ towards others in so much that we call them towards peace with God themselves. So a peacemaker is someone who calls others into peace with God. It's not peacekeeping because sometimes you've got to speak truth. And truth stirs the pot a little more than it does extinguish the flame sometimes. And you've got to be selective in understanding how you do that. But listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We must persuade others. Right? It's a natural one leads to the other. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to you. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. If you read through 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, Paul is very concerned that the Corinthians view him in the right way. Right? So this is his language here. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, And He has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Three quick observations. The first is, those who have truly been reconciled, Engage in the ministry of reconciliation. You just do. If you have zero concern for other people's peace with God, that speaks to your level of peace with God. Why? Because the second observation is true. This ministry of reconciliation comes straight out of an overflowing love for God. You are so 
blown away that God has made this kind of costly peace with you that you've got to tell everyone, you know? It's the best restaurant you've ever eaten at, and you're going to tell your friends about it. You know? It's the, the easiest professor to get an A at, and you're going to tell all your friends to sign up for his class, right? This is what we're talking about. Like, your experience with the peace of God is so outrageous and unbelievable that it is just flowing out over you. And so you are naturally, whether you're speaking it loud or just in your total actions, drawing people to God, you're no longer looking at them from the world's perspective as, what can you do for me? You are now looking at them with the mind of Christ that says, the big guy wants to make peace with you, and how can I help you know it? It changes everything with how you perceive and interact with people. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. And Paul says then you naturally take on the vocation of being an ambassador. An ambassador. I think there are three simple things. We're going to have lots of time to talk about this. Three simple things that are true of an ambassador. First thing that's true of an ambassador is he or she knows the king. Right? King would not send them to a foreign land to represent him or the queen you know, unless this person knew him and knew him well. The second thing is the ambassador knows the king's agenda. He wouldn't send them to this foreign land unless the ambassador was going to promote the king's agenda, not his own. And then the third thing is the ambassador knows his or her context. They know where they're going. They can speak the language where they're going. If President Obama called me later today, we've talked a few times, if he, if he called me later today and asked me if I would like the post of ambassador to China, while I would feel unbelievably you know, wonderful about him asking me for this great post, I have no knowledge of any context there. I'd be the worst ambassador to China. I don't speak the language. I don't even know how to say one word in Chinese. It would be a terrible decision. If he asked me to go to Canada, things would be a little bit easier for me as an ambassador, right? This is what it means. And so what you need to know about your life is that God didn't just flick you and make you land where you are. He has sent you as His ambassador. That you know the King, that you know the King's agenda, and that you know your context, and you are making peace between men and God. This is what it means to be a peacemaker. You can only do it if you've experienced peace with God. James chapter 3, a whole different perspective on viewing people through the mind of Christ. Let me read this. For verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? I love when Bible authors start with that. I'm always wondering... If in their mind they're expecting the answer, no one. <laughs> Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but from earthly, unspiritual, and demonic things. For where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, 
And then it is peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What does it mean to view people with the mind of Christ? It means not just to call them towards peace with God. It also means to cultivate peace with them yourselves. Doesn't it? And the reason that peace doesn't exist between people in our world, James gives two reasons. Bitter envy and selfish ambition. Now, if we are characterized by a lack of peace with others, which most of us, that's part of who we are, right? then what that means is we're also characterized by bitter envy and selfish ambition. Now it's getting messy, right? And what I want to tell you what that really means is that you don't have peace with God. Why? Because someone who is envious, to the, with, to some, envious of someone else to the point that they are bitter over it is so desperate for the affirmation and approval of others that they haven't found it in God. You hear it? If you found peace in God, you found full acceptance. No strings attached. You are accepted. If you are so envious of someone else that you are bitter over it, you've left the acceptance that God offers aside and you are full on after the acceptance that someone else can give you. Same way with selfish ambition. So the key point of this passage in James once again is if you want peace with other people, you've got to have peace with God. And if your life or a relationship is characterized by a lack of peace, can your first thought not be, man, if this person would change, but can it rather be, what was the cost at which God bought peace with me. And what would it mean for me to model that in this particular relationship? Can I suggest something to you? Maybe this is outlandish, I don't know. Peace is actually, in my mind, a singular activity. It is not a communal activity. If you and I are in strife or discord, I can pursue peace even if you don't want to. Unity is different. Unity is communal. We need everyone after it in order to get it. Peace is singular in my mind in the biblical sense. And I think what the Gospel would tell us is if peace doesn't exist in a relationship, your first look better be inside. Not at what this person could do to change things. My first look better be, man, have I found my full acceptance in God or am I looking to it in this relationship? And are they not giving me, the value that I think I deserve from them. And therefore, peace and discord exists. What would it mean to be a peacemaker in that situation? Not to be the better man and let it go. That's calling a truce. A peacemaker reconciles. The only way that you reconcile is that you take on the sin of another and bear the cost yourself. That's what Jesus did. And the only way you are ever capable of doing it is if you look at what Jesus has done for you and you finally found the acceptance and the value that you want in God Himself. You know what's so interesting? And we'll close with this. 
Later on in chapter 4, James is still fleshing this thing out about quarrels and discord and everything. And I love this. This is what he said. Here's how you deal with quarrels and discord. Here's how you deal with a lack of peace. Right? We're ready for like the five steps. This would make a great book in Barnes and Noble in the self-help section, right? How do we deal with discord in families or relationships? And this is what James said. This just strikes me to my heart. This is the answer. Submit yourself to God. That's how you find peace with others. In other words, hey, buddy, the reason you don't have peace is you've ranked yourself higher than God. Submit is the Greek word hubitasso. It means to rank under. Submit yourself to God. When you do, you will resist the devil and he will flee from you because he is desperate to create a lack of peace because it is the opposite of the kingdom that Jesus brings. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen to this. Now James starts to get all beatitude on us. Listen to, these, listen to this language. Grieve and mourn and wail. Right? Blessed are those who mourn. Change your laughter from mourning and your joy to gloom. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Blessed are those who are meek truth is, if you have any interest in being a peacemaker, you must find peace with God. And if peace is missing in your life, what James would tell you is something's wrong in your rankings in your life with you and God. And how are you going to rank God higher? Why don't you give reading the Beatitudes a try again? And so we find here, blessed are the peacemakers, the climax of the Beatitudes. And I'll leave you with this. How do you know that you are a peacemaker? What is the single, singular evidence of peacemaking? The answer is persecution. And that is the final Beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted. If you make peace, you will be persecuted. Count on. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Can I pray with you?